Hello and welcome to Bust and Beyond with your host, Robin Hayhurst. In this podcast, Robin will share his personal journey and experiences from his businesses and help you to learn from failure. You'll learn tips, tricks, and how to see things from a new perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Hayhurst. Right, hello everybody and welcome again to Bust and Beyond and we're this part two of Carrie Nicholson. So um, we're now talking about what went wrong and what lessons were learned. So Carrie, you described what your business did and that uh, you had a partner. What actually went wrong? Oh gosh, where do we start? The first thing that went wrong was assuming that the environment that I'd left in 2002 when I stopped consulting was the same in 2012 and not doing enough homework. The contracts were still out there. The clients were still out there. But the biggest challenge was that the tendering basis had completely and utterly changed. And and to give you an indication of that, when we used to bid for work, one of the first things that were, uh, that we did, and we were the only consultancy company that did this, and we clients used to tell us that when I was with Phone Crime Roberts, is we would go and visit the client and say, okay, let's talk. I want to find out more about you know what you're looking to get out of this, what your motivations are, what are the key points for you, and you could have that dialogue, and off that you could write absolutely cracking proposals because you knew intimately what they wanted. And sometimes what they had put in the proposal was not actually what they either wanted or needed, but those conversations would bottom that out. By the time I re-entered economic development, it was all done through tendering portals. And you could not have any conversation or contact with the potential client, apart from answering, submitting and having questions answered online, which then got fed back to everybody else who was bidding for it. I'm not necessarily certain that that's a good idea, but that's the way it works. So that was the first thing, was not doing my not doing sufficient research to understand the mechanism for getting contracts had by and large changed. The second thing that went wrong was didn't go wrong the relationship between the two of us, but there was an imbalance there. And and we'll get onto that with, you know, when we come on to the lessons learned thing. I allowed myself to be talked into a position where I was not leading in terms of dialogue with clients and in terms of interviews, because I allowed myself to be convinced that somebody with his interviewing technique was probably better at that than I was. And then the third thing, the real thing that went wrong was we actually started getting contracts and doing really well and getting fabulous feedback from clients remember one client saying to me, this is the best report that anybody has ever written for us because it's the first one that's actually written. One in plain English that I can understand, 
and two, that actually has an action plan that tells us where we need to go and is fully costed as to what happens next. And everything was beginning to look great. And then we had the 2015 election. And as a result of the election, which led to a conservative majority rather than they sharing power with the Lib Dems, the entire funding community, the, the, the entire network changed within economic development. And all of a sudden, clients that had been really happy working with us got cold feet. And I started to hear things like, there are only two of you. We have real concerns about your resilience. What happens if something happens to you? You know, what happens if you're ill? And I was like, well, we work because otherwise we can't, you know, put bread on the table. And it became very clear that there was a, a huge degree of nervousness in the public sector about working with anybody who was not one of the big name consultancy companies. So, Carrie, what, what were you going through at this moment in time then? What, how are you feeling about this? Dreadful. Frustrated. Frustrated with myself predominantly. I just, just thinking, why did I let this happen? Angry that people were not listening to reason. So, for example... I had a conversation with a prospective client who, up until the election, we were actually on the shortlist for a piece of work, and it was a big piece of work. And it was a piece of work we would have done superbly. And they said, we can't use you now because there's only two of you. And I said, so, okay, who off the record, who are you going with? And they named one of the big four consultancy companies. And I said, okay, you do know that they actually only have one specialist in this field. Yeah, but they're a massive company. And I said, yeah, and if that one specialist is off or it goes off sick, what you will actually get is one of their colleagues and actually it'll probably be one of their junior colleagues and it might even be an intern who will take over work on your project and it will have to be fitted in with everything else that that other person is doing. So if what you're concerned about is resilience and loss of specialist expertise, you've actually got more chance of that happening in a big consultancy company where there are very few people doing what we do than it is with both of us. Can I just ask one question in there? Because I think this is quite important when people go through this. At this point in time, could you see failure happening? Yeah. Okay, so you could see it. Because I find it, from my experience, a lot of people don't. They just don't, don't appreciate that failures. The last person to realise they're going to fail is the business owner. Yes. I think the only reason, that because my, my business partner couldn't see failure, absolutely couldn't see failure. And I think I was probably uniquely placed to do this because quite, quite a lot of what you do in economic development is actually to analyze causes of failure in other organizations and why businesses fail. Why? So we'd done, across Europe, we'd looked at this and I could see this happening because I could see that there was not, when you looked at where we got most of our contracts from, the attitudes and the fears that the potential clients had were not going to go away. So moving forward then, what would you say you are the main lessons learned from it? What would you do differently if you had your time again? 
you know, I understand, you know, you, you spoke about partnerships. We know partnerships are very challenging because there's often a difference in what effort different partners are putting in and they judge each other. And I think part, I haven't got the facts and figures, but I think partnerships are more likely to fail than a normal company. But, you know, around that, you know. Oh, yes, around that. So so what would I have done differently? So the first thing is I would have done a lot more research into what the market looked like. It was hubri and pride on my part that I, I made an assumption that nothing had changed. And assumptions are really, really bad ways of of doing your market research. So I would have done a lot more market research and I would have probably gone out and spoken to a lot more potential clients and particularly clients that I'd had a good relationship with when I was consulting previously to make sure that one, they knew I was back in town and two, to find out what had changed from their point of view so so understanding the market and it's it's ironic because i was actually teaching this to other people and i used to write about this but i had forgotten to do it for myself so that's the first thing the second thing is for any of you out there contemplating a partnership please do not create an llp it is an absolute disaster waiting to happen particularly from a tax point of view but also, if you're going to set up a limited liability partnership, you need to be one absolutely certain that the person that you're going into is going to be the perfect partner for you. And two, you need to have really tight and well-defined and written down guidelines as to who does what and why. I totally agree, Carrie. I think I often talk to clients about um, what, you know, a, a table, which makes sure that you absolutely know what you're accountable for. And if you've got two partners, you can't overlap. You've got to have your role and you've got to be absolutely accountable for that role. And that's the way to keep partnership on, on track. People just kind of go on it and share the roles and it just doesn't work because things go wrong. And actually, who's accountable for it? It's not, it's not about whose fault it is. Who's accountable for it and how can you change? Who's accountable? And I think the other thing is, trust your gut. If you know you are the lead expert and actually this is your field that you're bringing somebody else into play, which is what effectively was happening, don't let yourself be talked out of the superpower that your expertise and knowledge has. Oh, no, I, I, I totally understand that. And I think, um, but we all suffer from imposter syndrome, don't we? And sometimes if you're in a partnership or you're working with other people, uh, you might not push yourself to the forefront. And I've always said about imposter syndrome, if you find anyone who doesn't suffer from it, keep clear because they're completely nuts. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one of those things. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, partnerships are dodgy area. But you're talking about portals. And I think um, in my industry, I think portals are becoming bigger and bigger thing and I, I, mean, I don't like them I don't think that you often have the chance to express your benefits on a portal very well how would you get around that now then in with you know hindsight experience of suddenly coming across portals and not having that face-to-face -face contact with the client 
I get why portals came into being because there were ta- far too many deals done under the counter that ended up being not good for anybody concerned and particularly not good for investors or taxpayers. However, I think they've gone so far that it's impossible to get a good contract out of it because if you're there as a if you're there as a contractor part of it is you're being hired for your knowledge and skills and so many people must look at a contract that comes out and go that's stupid they haven't actually thought that through because the person putting the contract out is putting it out because they don't have that specialist expertise themselves so they're making assumptions and they're doing all sorts of things i would suggest I have a number of clients who are in the sort of particularly the construction industry in its broadest sense. What they have done to get around that is they are making efforts to get to know the people that they see as being their ideal clients outside the whole tendering thing. So, If you tie it into a contract, they can't talk to you. If you tie it into a specific contract, but to actually be able to go to a, if you identify that, I don't know, Mott McDonald is one of your biggest clients or Highways Agency or HS2 or whatever, that ultimately they are going to be the people paying your bills then it does not hurt to say, I just want to come and pick your brains to find out the kind of things that you're looking for when you put contracts out. You are not talking about a specific contract. You're getting in their head about what matters and what doesn't. And it's just as important when you talk to major developers because they've got stuff in their heads that that may not be ready to go in a contract yet. But if you understand where they're coming from, and the kind of things that they are looking for when they work with somebody, then even going through a portal, you can structure your response for that. But more than that, because you've made the time and effort to talk to them, your business name is going to be at the back of their mind. I see that. And I I think in my industry, there's loads of networking events you can go to to meet people. Lots of people work for housing associations. They have their events. Architects have their events. All the kind of people that you can approach. And I think that face-to-face contact is really, really important. It's game-changing. So if, you know, we talk about soft touches in marketing, it's all about soft touches. If you put an application through a portal and that name of your company rings a bell and they can put a face to it, that gives you an unbiased bias. So an unconscious bias, sorry. So, you know, it gives an unconscious bias towards you if you've come over well. And I think that's that's quite important. And those networking events that you talk about, you know, when the housing associations do them, when the big contractors do them, when the architects do them, those business cards that you walk away with, with those people that you've met, follow it up. Follow it up. Take time just to say, I'm going to be in your area next week. Can we have a coffee? Because they're meeting thousands of people. But you saying, I'd like to have a coffee just to understand a bit more about you and what you do and the kind of things you're looking for. That's it. Most of them will say yes. 
really important to book the next stage for anybody if you're talking sales. So if you're trying to sell something, it's really important to tie down the next stage. I remember going to a conference. I won't say where, and I won't say the kind of people I met because it's a bit, um, but they were way on a jolly. They were all drunk. You're handing out your cards. Everyone's really interested in speaking to you. And then you hear nothing ever. They can't even remember your name in the morning because, um, you know, they're just on a jolly. <laughs> and that's typical of particular sectors. And what you should really do is book in the next stage. So you stand in there, you go, right, okay, fantastic. I'm glad you're interested in speaking to me. Why don't we book in that I'll come to your office and meet you on this date? And, you know, have you got your diary on you? Most people have. Now, you won't be successful all the time in, in booking someone in, but, um, you know, it's better than getting blank the next day or you phoning them up and then they're going, who are you? It kind of works, uh, works a bit better. Well, that's brilliant. So what, if you had to kind of button it down to kind of your, your major lessons learned, your kind of, say, your three key things that you'd do differently if you set that company up again, what would they be? Do your re- research. Make sure that the company formation structure is one that is actually going to work for you and don't let yourself be put in the background if it's your level of expertise that's driving the business in the first place. Thanks for joining me. That's really fantastic. That's great news. And I look forward to uh, perhaps speaking to you again on this podcast in a few months' time. That would be wonderful. Take care and uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Bust and Beyond with Robin Hayhurst. Be sure to tune in next time and visit his website at robinhayhurst.com.